Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. This is the record that God has given to us, eternal life. And this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing, is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him, and through him, and to him, are all things, to whom be the glory forever. Amen. Before we begin our study of God's Word, let's go to the Lord and ask His guidance and direction on our time of study this morning. Father, as the Apostle Paul stated in the second epistle to Timothy, that all Scripture is breathed out by you and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God might be equipped thoroughly furnished for every good work. It is your word that you use to equip us, to prepare us, to change our thinking so that we think in terms of reality and not in terms of our own wishes, desires, or fantasies. Father, it is your word that teaches us about who you are, that you are the one and only God of the universe, that you are unique, you are the creator of the heavens and the earth and the seas and all that is in them. And, Father, it is your word that makes it clear to us that there is only one way to have a, any sort of relationship with you, and that is through Jesus Christ. And this message of exclusivity, that there is only one way that the Bible is right and everything else is wrong, is a message that has, uh, it has offended human beings living in rebellion against you throughout history. And as we study This morning we see that this is true in this time in Israel's history when they have uh, syncretized their belief system with the paganism of of the Baal worship and the fertility cults. And and what they have done is no different from what what we see around us in our own time, our own culture, and even many of us in areas of our own thinking. So, Father, as we study your word today, may we be able to submit ourselves to the teaching of your word the message that is here, and that God the Holy Spirit would use use it to challenge us with our devotion, commitment, and service to you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. 1 Kings 18 is truly one of the most dramatic, one of the most powerful chapters in all of Scripture. As Elijah goes to Mount Carmel and challenges the prophets of Baal, 450 prophets of Baal, 400 prophets of, of uh, the Asherah, which was a female consort of Baal, as he challenges them to a duel. 
to demonstrate the reality of God. And in that, he is challenging every single Israelite in not only the northern kingdom but the southern kingdom of Judah to make a decision. That's the problem they have is that they're like many people in our world, maybe some of you, is that they want to pick and choose what they believe. They want to syncretize their belief system. That's what that word means. It's just, well, I'm going to go have smorgasbord belief system. I like this from this place and that from that place and this other idea. And I'm just going to put them together. And it really doesn't matter if they fit. It really doesn't matter if they're consistent. It just matters that it makes me feel good. It just matters that it somehow gives me a way of making life work. But I really don't care about uh, truth or reality. And what God has a way of breaking through into our lives with circumstances and experiences that force us to have to make decisions at times. And in the Old Testament and at times in the New Testament, there were situations where that became abundantly clear as God directly challenged the false belief system of human beings, whether it was some kind of a legalistic, moralistic religion like the Pharisees or in the New Testament or whether it's the immoral and perverted fertility worship of the pagans Uh, fertility cults in the Old Testament. God is not going to let his creatures be without a witness. There is objective verification of the reality of God. And it only has to really happen once for it to be objectively verified. It doesn't have to happen in every generation. You'll find people who say that and say, well, if God would do today what he did with Elijah in the Old Testament, then I would believe in him. Well, if you follow out the basic assumption in that view, then you would have to destroy the entire judicial system in the world because the judicial system in the world is predicated on the fact that there are objective witnesses of historical incidents, whether it's a crime or whether it's a traffic accident, but that these witnesses provide clear, factual, objective witnesses, and it doesn't matter if there's if their witness was two years ago, five years ago, ten years ago, but that that has happened, and it has happened in history, and that is real. And so if Jesus performs a miracle and he raises Lazarus from the dead, then that sign, that miracle, is just as valid and just as real for us 2,000 years later as it was for the people who were actual eyewitnesses. And if you don't like that, then, like I said, you've just got to do away with the whole judicial system because the judicial system is predicated on the, on the, base, on the value and the reality of, of these witnesses. And we have in the Old Testament one of the greatest uh, evidences, one of the greatest witnesses to the reality of God, his objective reality, took place in uh, what we might call the prophet Super Bowl on Mount Carmel when Elijah chat one challenges 850 false prophets. And you would think that in a system of thought, as many people have in the United States, that the majority is right, that Elijah would be overruled 849 times. But God plus one is a majority, and God demonstrates that he is who he claims to be, and he only, like I said, he only needs to do that 
He only do, needs to do that once. Now, let me remind you a little bit about the circumstances that are going on here. The northern kingdom came under the influence of this just perverted religious system about 20 or 30 years earlier under Omri, Ahab's father, when he goes through the process of allying himself to the uh, king of Tyre and Phoenicia and brings in the arranges a marriage between uh, his daughter and the king of Phoenicia was the priest king. He was the priest of the, uh, and head of the religion of Baal. And so his daughter is the daughter of the high priest of Baal. And she is brought to marry Ahab. This is in direct violation of the Mosaic law. It is in direct violation of God's direct revelation to Israel that they should have no other gods uh, before him. And God had warned in Deuteronomy that, and in Leviticus that there would be a series of divine disciplines or judgments upon the nation if they disobeyed him. And one of those would be drought and famine. And this is what Elijah announced at the beginning of 1 Kings 17, functioning as a prosecuting attorney, representing God, representing the party of the first part in the contract, the covenant between God and Israel. Elijah comes and says, it's not going to rain again until I say so. And then he was directed by God to go off and isolate himself and hide in two different places in the wilderness uh, for three and a half years, and then it's time for God to bring him back to Ahab, and now he is going to confront Ahab as a prelude to calling upon God to bring back the rain. In all of this, he is demonstrating that this religious system that the people have taken hook, line, and sinker from Jezebel, the uh, fertility worship, is completely false, that they can't base their lives on it at all. It does not work. It doesn't fit reality. It's just a fantasy. And see, that's not any different from so many people in our world. They have their own construct of what they think reality is. Some of you that are here are young people. You're teenagers. You're in college. And you have heard this position from that teacher, or you have uh, picked up certain ideas about Christianity or religion from uh, professors at, at school or from friends or peers, and you have been influenced in many ways by your own culture, and you picked up this relativistic idea that somehow you can just sort of pick and choose what you believe and that it doesn't really have to fit together. In fact, if you've really been impacted by our culture, anybody who claims that what you believe has to be logically consistent is way off base because it's already been proven, hasn't it, that logic doesn't work. Reason can't lead you to truth. And we live in a world that is in reaction to reason, reaction to logic, and they are promoting just feeling and uh, emotion and just the impression that something, uh, something works, whether there's an underlying reality or not. And as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, part of our responsibility is to challenge and confront these pagan beliefs. We do that in several different areas. The first area in which we challenge those beliefs is within our own soul because we are products of the culture around us. We're products of the training of our parents, which may not be biblical. 
and we are influenced by the media, we're influenced by film, we're influenced by uh, values that are presented in television, and so we absorb these things into our thinking, and until we become a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, and until we begin to uh, take in the Word and let uh, the Word challenge our thinking, renewing our minds so that we're not conformed to the world, we just have this hodgepodge of uh, ideas running around in our heads, many of which don't don't fit together. So we have to challenge and confront the paganism that's in our own soul. Next thing we have to do is when we are witnessing to people, when we're explaining the gospel to people, there will be circumstances and situations and conversations we have with unbelievers where we need to learn how to challenge and confront the paganism that they have and do that in such a way that is not antagonistic, that is not combative, that is not argumentative, but is a way that is done in grace so that we can help a person see the flaws and failures in their own belief system as we help them understand the truth of of Christianity. Now, not everybody needs that because people are different. They come out of different positions and different backgrounds, but that is one uh, conversation that we often have to have uh, as we witness to people, as we witness to people today. Another way in which we have to challenge and confront paganism is in your parenting responsibility. If you have children, then it is your job to teach and train them in terms of divine viewpoint and to challenge all of the areas of paganism that are coming into their little heads. And if you don't do that, it doesn't matter what else you teach them. When they're 18, 19, or 20 years of age, uh, they will not be, they will, when they leave home, they will not be following, uh, what you taught them. Because at the foundation of their thinking is still human viewpoint, and you may have taught them a lot of individual principles about the Bible. They assimilated this idea and that idea and this doctrine and that doctrine. But it's, it's like building a house on a sandy foundation. Jesus used that illustration. Even though some of the building materials are good, because the foundation is not strong, then when the storms of life, adversities of life, peer pressure, things of that nature come into their lives, then their thought system, uh, the beliefs that you thought you instilled in them, collapse. And study after study after study, survey after survey after survey over the last 20 years have demonstrated that between 80 and 90 percent uh, in some cases, of young people, children that have been raised in a Christian home, been raised, pre, uh, and, and the statistics do not vary whether you are a whether you are a parent who is homeschooling, whether you have your children at a Christian school, or whether you have your children at a public school. The statistics don't vary. That between eighty and ninety percent of these young people will completely reject what they have been taught, and they are functional pagans within a year of leaving home when they're, when they're 19 years old. And that is a failure in many ways of both the parenting process because parents aren't involved enough with their children to really analyze their thinking and challenge their thinking and help them to think critically in terms of divine viewpoint. It's a failure to some degree of... of uh, 
parents because they think, oh, well, the Sunday school will do it or the prep school will do it, the church will do it. And that's only an hour a week, and that can't be expected in their life any more than it can be expected in your life to overturn all that human viewpoint garbage with just one hour a week when they're uh, just being dumped on by all that human viewpoint garbage for all of the other hours, all the other hours of the week. So as parents, you have to learn to challenge uh, your kids, and that's one of the reasons we have structured our prep school curriculum the way we do is so that uh, children, as they grow and they go through various stages, uh, stages of life, will be able to handle questions, challenges, objections to the Word of God that they hear in uh, school, they hear from friends, they hear through the media, so that they can have a firm foundation and understand not only what they believe but why, why they believe it, that there is such a thing as real objective truth that you can count on no matter what. Recently there was a book out by Ken Ham, and a, I forget his co-author, uh, and it's called, entitled Already Gone. I've asked all of our prep school teachers to read this book, and I encourage you, if you are a parent, to get a hold of this book, Already Gone by Ken Ham, and it's based on a recent survey that Answers in Genesis Ministry uh, commissioned as a study. And they, they surveyed uh, over a 1,000 uh, young people in their 20s who grew up churched, going to church. Now, this is a broad spectrum. This includes evangelical Lutherans and Presbyterians and, and um, evangelical Methodists and just a broad spectrum. So in many of these churches, there's really no subst- sub- substantive teaching either from the pulpit or in the classroom. I don't think that's a problem that we have ever faced in our uh, circumstances or our tradition, but it's true in many of them. And as a result of these surveys, they pointed out that that a lot of these kids are not lost when they're 18. They're lost between 12 and 15. And so it's not too early to start training these kids and teaching them and confronting the the paganism and human viewpoint that they're getting uh, from the very beginning. If you wait until they're uh, 12, 13, or 14, it uh, it may be too late. I'm not discounting the work of the Holy Spirit or the Word of God, but I'm challenging parents that they need to be much more intimately involved in the thought processes and the thought training of their children. So we have to uh, challenge and confront paganism in our own souls. We have to challenge and confront paganism at times when we witness. We have to challenge and confront paganism uh, in our children. And there are also times when, as believers living in the political system in which we're under, where the government is of the people, by the people, and for the people, and we're the boss, that we have to challenge the paganism that influences the culture. So in those areas, we we need to challenge paganism. Now, that's exactly what Elijah was doing. And in chapter 18, we see that this is a challenge between Elijah and the priests of Baal as he is confronting the paganism that is destroying the northern kingdom. And the statue there is a statue that is built in commemoration of this event that is located on Mount Carmel in the traditional site of where of where this occurred. And in the picture, you see that uh, Elijah has a raised sword over his head and his foot is on the head of one of the priests of Baal as he is 
preparing to decapitate him, which is what occurs at the end of the episode. Now, Mount Carmel is a prominent ridge, actually. It's not like a mountain. It's not like Pikes Peak or uh, Mount Whitney or Mount Rainier. It is a ridge line that runs from northwest to the southeast, that just south of the port of Haifa in um, in the northern kingdom of Israel. And here is a picture of it from uh, the southeast looking northwest. The ridge line in the distance is the Carmel Ridge. The white uh, mountaintop, hilltop rather, in the foreground, or right in the center of the picture, that is the ancient tell of Megiddo, which is not very far from uh, from Mount Carmel. Megiddo is uh, um, is a very ancient site. They've uncovered, depending on who you read or who you listen to, somewhere between 24 and 28 different layers of civilization. It is the Tel Megiddo, the hill of Megiddo, called Har Megiddo, in the in the Hebrew, that is where we get the word Armageddon. It is the hill of Megiddo, and the plain that you see just to the uh, just to the right, and you see part of it between uh, Megiddo and the ridge of Carmel. That is part of the Valley of Esdraelon, the Jezreel Valley, also known as the the Valley of Armageddon. So as you approach uh, Mount Carmel, you see it is a pr- prominent ridge line, and it can be seen from uh, 30, 40, 50 miles away. It dominates the, the landscape here. And if something happens on top of Mount Carmel, uh, it is something that is quite, uh, quite visible. This is where the events are going to take place. So let's go back a little bit to verse 17 when we see, the, uh, see this challenge begin. In verse 17... Elijah finally confronts Ahab after three and a half years that Ahab has been searching for him in every nook and cranny of the of the northern kingdom and beyond, hoping to uh, kill him, arrest him, imprison him somehow to get the reins to return. And we read there that it happened when Ahab saw Elijah that Ahab said to him, Is that you, O troubler of Israel, a troublemaker? Now, this is the pot calling the kettle black, except the kettle's not really black at all. This is typical projection, how many times we see this in marriage conflicts or in political uh, maneuverings and uh, machinations and debate, where you accuse the other person of doing exactly what you're doing. And we can come up with lots of illustrations of that. It's a time-honored debating technique. It's a time-honored tradition. It didn't get was not invented by modern politicians. It's been around probably since uh, Satan first fell. So we have Ahab accusing Elijah of exactly what Ahab is doing. He's the one who has agitated, troubled. Israel, because he is the one who has brought in this this false religious system through his wife Jezebel. But Elijah, notice, doesn't allow this to pass unchallenged. He says in verse 18, I have not troubled Israel, but you and your father's house have, in that you have forsaken the commandments of the Lord and have followed the Baals. That That is the issue, is that 
from Omri, Ahab's father, to Ahab and Jezebel, they have brought in this false religious system, this false way of thinking into the northern kingdom, and they have mandated it, government mandate, and Jezebel has sent out her uh, Einsatzgruppen, that's what the Germans called the hit squads they sent out to round up the Jews in Eastern Europe and to take them to the concentration camps. Well, Ahab and Jezebel had their own Einsatzgruppen, and they were sending out uh, their hit squads to gather up every prophet in the northern kingdom in order to uh, execute them and in order to remove them. So this was a dark, dark period in Israel's history. So Elijah says, you and your father's house are the real troublers, and it's because you forsake the commandment of the Lord and follow the Baals. The root problem in any problem is always spiritual. It always gets traced back to a spiritual issue, a belief system. The problem in the northern kingdom wasn't an economic problem. It wasn't a meteorological problem. You know, we have people, uh, chicken littles running around saying that uh, the earth is getting warmer and warmer and man is causing it, and so we need to stop doing everything so that uh, somehow in the future that their weather predictions are such that 100 years from now we're all going to be burning up. They can't even predict the weather tomorrow. So why does anybody believe this? So they, um, we have to recognize that at the root of everything is a spiritual issue. At the root of everything is your relationship to God. And that's how Elijah is going to confront this. And the challenge goes out in verse 19. Now, therefore, send. He's ordering uh, the king. Notice the prophet in Israel was viewed as God's representative. And so he, his authority, because it is really God's authority, is always over the king. He orders the king, send and gather all Israel to me on Mount Carmel. Notice all Israel. He's speaking of the northern kingdom, and he's going to put on a show. He wants all everybody to come. He is going to have tens of thousands of witnesses to what is going to transpire on Mount Carmel. He's not doing this in hiding. It's not just Elijah up there with the 850 false prophets and and Ahab. There are going to be tens of thousands of witnesses to what is going to happen. See, when God acts in history, he doesn't hide it. That's one of the problems with mysticism is that While God at times in Scripture gives private revelation to people, he always confirms it in a publicly demonstrable, objective fashion. God is not sneaking around, hiding things in uh, in subjectivity. So he says, gather all of Israel to me on Mount Carmel. It's going to have high visibility. If they had had satellite projection and television and cameras, they would have had all of the media there in order to film this. Elijah doesn't want anybody to miss what's going to happen. So gather to me the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. You know, this is Jezebel's little private uh, bureaucracy. They are completely subsidized by the government. And what they are doing now, when you get a free lunch from the government, the last thing in the world you want anyone to do is to take away that free lunch because you have already sold your soul to the government. That's part of the problem that we're having today in all of this health care debate. I know there's lots of 
complexities to it. There's problems with insurance. There's problems with lawsuits. There's problems with um, many doctors who, you know, just assign various different procedures that are unnecessary, and so you have uh, greed entering into it and a lack of integrity. All of that just a product of our culture. But culturally, all this goes back to decisions that were made and accepted in this nation by uh, the way Franklin Delano Roosevelt sought to resolve the problems of the Great Depression. We stepped over the line into uh, socialism then, and we're just following out the logical conclusion of that now. It may take, has taken 50, 60, 70 years to get here, but that's the, that's the trajectory that the nation has had. Uh, I remember as a teenager listening to uh, my parents uh, debate over the and argue and complain about Medicare and Medicaid as increased socialized medicine. See, we've already crossed the line. Uh, you know, what's coming up is just taking things to their logical, logical conclusion. And so we have the same kind of problems in the ancient world where people want to live off of the largesse of government and that is, they've sold their soul, they've given up their, uh, their own personal responsibility in order to pursue power and privilege. And so Ahab follows the orders. Verse 20, he sent for all the children of Israel, gathered the prophets together on Mount Carmel. This must have been a fascinating gathering. The 850 prophets, the, all of the, uh, Retinue and all of the attendants to the king of Israel plus tens of thousands of others. And Elijah presents a challenge to them like a good preacher. He is driving his message home. Verse 21. There's a little play on words in this, in this verse too that you miss in the, in the English. He says, uh, to all the people, how long will you falter? The King James translated it falter. Other translations have said vacillate or how long will you waver uh, between two opinions. I think this idea of faltering or wavering doesn't really get to the, the heart of this, this word here. The word that is used here for falter is the same word that is used down in verse 26 when it describes the uh, priests of Baal leaping about the altar. Same word. So what we have here is the problem of being religious jumpers. A lot of us are religious jumpers. Just like last week, there's a lot of Christians who are more like Obadiah, who've settled for sort of a limited role of God in their life, and they're sort of a mediocre spirituality. There's a lot of uh, believers who are just spiritual jumpers. One minute they're believing in the Bible, the next minute they're jumping over here and acting as if they believe something totally opposite, and they just jump back and forth from moment to moment between one belief system and another belief system. And that's what Elijah is saying. It's very strong. How long are you going to keep jumping back and forth? One minute you're, you're invoking the name of Yahweh, the next minute you're invoking the name of Baal. One minute you're praising Moses, and the next minute you're praising uh the Asherah, and you're going up to worship at the uh, groves and the high places. See, what's going on is religious syncretism. They're trying to have their cake and eat it too. They want to take beliefs and ideas from both views so they can make everybody happy and not offend anybody and be truly culturally diverse. But the problem is the only thing that they have done 
is to fragment their own soul and to destroy their own spirituality. So Elijah offers the same challenge that we have today. How long are you going to just go back and forth because you're afraid to commit, you're afraid to take your stand on the Word of God, take your stand that God is God's Word is true all the time and in every situation. And so one minute you're going to try to handle it through your own uh, problem-solving devices, and the next minute you're going to do, do it God's way. But as soon as uh, it gets a little challenging to trust Him, you're back the other way. You've just assimilated all these other ideas, moral relativism, situational ethics, and it doesn't really matter after all. At least I'm saved. Now, what we have to realize is every single person has a philosophy. Every single person has a religious viewpoint. Even atheists are religious. Secular humanists are religious. They have secular humanism as a religion. Supreme Court recognized that uh, back in the early 70s. That's just an obvious uh, obvious reality. If the position there is a God is religious, then the opposite position there is no God is equally as religious. So every position has as some kind of religious view, everybody has a philosophy, everybody has some sort of worldview or some sort of approach to life. I remember talking to a man uh, some uh, 30 years ago, and I said, what's your philosophy of life? And he was just kind of a good old country boy. He said, I don't have a philosophy of life. You know, I just like to farm. And I said, well, that's part of your philosophy of life. You know, people think philosophy means that you've gone to school, studied philosophy, and you can talk about metaphysics and ontology and epistemology and all of these big words. But philosophy of life is, is your view of how people ought to live. It includes everything from your ideas of right and wrong, your ideas of the purpose and meaning of life, how husbands should relate to wives, wives to husbands, how companies should handle their uh, employers, how governments should be run. You see, everybody has a philosophy of life. So I'm going to give you four little points here on this, elements of a religion, philosophy, worldview, or just if you just want to call it your approach to life, that's what it is. You have, um, first of all, everyone has a philosophy of life. Some are conscious of it, and they have a rational, that should be rational, not uh, rationale, uh, no E on the end, just rational and internally consistent. Some people have a conscious, thought-out philosophy of life. They've thought about it. It's rational. It coheres. It's consistent. But most people don't. They don't even think about it. They've just picked up this belief and that belief, and they've just sort of uh, made a sort of a patchwork quilt in their in their head. And they don't even worry about the fact that it's not consistent because it just matters whatever makes them feel good uh, at the moment. Second thing, second point is that every worldview or religion contains universals. That's really the window that we can use to get into how somebody thinks. Every worldview has some sort of sense of what should be done what ought to be done, what's right or what's wrong. Just talk to some uh, somebody who believes in uh, pure moral relativism and, uh, and make a statement that something is absolutely wrong all the time, and they'll tell you that, that that's wrong. They'll disagree with you. People shouldn't have those kind of views. You're just a radical, reactionary, right-wing, fundamentalist Christian if you believe that it's wrong, that homosexual marriage is wrong. 
Oh, well, where do you get that idea it's wrong? You've got to have some value system. I thought you said that values were uh, completely relative. You've got an absolute there. So everybody has a value system, and when people start using words like, well, the government shouldn't do that or the government should do that or that's wrong for that uh, company to do this and, and that's uh, right for this company to do that and it's terribly wrong that some of these uh, Wall Street companies pay their uh, CEOs uh, $50 million packages, uh, they, they've just opened the door to their value system, their worldview. Third, uh, entry points then to worldviews often through your value or ethics, and that's going to open up all the other things that come along with it. And the fourth point is that ethical principles are always based on uh, prior assumptions about the nature of truth or knowledge and the ultimate nature of the universe. Because when you say something is right, you're basically saying that something is true. If you say there's no such thing as absolute truth, you're saying there's no such thing as absolute right or wrong. So that's what the challenge is going to be with the uh, to those who have worshipped Baal. And see, Elijah understands how important this is because when a culture gives itself over to pure moral relativism, then that culture is doomed to internal collapse and failure, which is where our nation is is headed. Okay, let me build a few things on a ele- uh, elements of a religion, a philosophy, a worldview, or approach to life. And uh, so, first of all, the uh, that's a little statue of the Baal god down the lower left corner. In case you were wondering, so the 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 window is ethics, values, right or wrong statements. And this can take us then in a couple of different directions. Downstream, your views of ethics and values and right or wrong uh, end up giving you a philosophy of beauty, philosophy of order. This is known technically in philosophy as aesthetics. You ladies have heard the term aesthetics used in relationship to cosmetics and facials and things like that, but it's actually a much older word and more technical word in uh, philosophy, and it refers to critical reflection on art, culture, and nature. So if it involves critical reflection, that means it involves concepts of right or wrong, evaluation. And it deals with application in terms of art, which would include everything from performing arts to to uh, uh, visual arts, uh, music, uh, painting, Literature, all of these things would come into, into play there. Now, upstream from ethics and values, we have knowledge and truth. Your ethics, your values, your ideas of right and wrong all come from a basic core of understanding certain things are true, certain things are false, based on knowledge. But upstream of that is God. Upstream of that is God. There's always a God or God, lowercase g. There's always an ultimate reality out there. It's either pure matter, in which case everything is material and people don't have souls, and when you die, you just go in a casket and your uh, molecules just degrade, and after a while it's just nothing more than dust. And that's all there is. There's no, there's no future to life. The only meaning you have is what you grab right now. That's not very optimistic. But that's what a lot of people believe. Now, we'll talk a little bit about the contrast between human viewpoint, divine viewpoint, ethics, 
On the underneath it, I have the divine viewpoint at the, at the time of uh, in Baalism, and up in up in the right, we have the biblical viewpoint. I'm going to kind of blend this into several slides. In the uh, human viewpoint of that day, the ethics become arbitrary. That's what happens in every human viewpoint system, uh, every religious system other than the Bible. Ethics ultimately become arbitrary because it's based on the flux of somebody's experience in creation. So one group has this set of values, another group has that set of values, but it doesn't come from outside the system from a creator. Uh, in their case, it's priest-based. It's whatever the priest says is right or wrong. Uh, it's power-based because it's ultimately designed to give them power and put them in a position of control. And often it leads to violence, destruction, and it is dehumanizing. One of the most e- extreme uh, examples of this we see in our own history is that of what occurred in uh, in Nazi Germany. Also see it in other areas in the Soviet Union and in um, any totalitarian system where man becomes dehumanized in the process. And there's violence to stay in power. In contrast to that, as Christians, we believe that God is absolute, he's eternal, and his character is the, uh, is the source of all values. And he has revealed right and wrong to us as creatures. Now, as we go upstream, we see that in any human viewpoint system, knowledge is purely inductive. It's based on experience. It's based on my thought experience and rationalism or my um, tactile experience in, in uh, empiricism, and that can only lead to relativism because you can never say something is universally true because there's always something that can come along that will change things. So within, within paganism, knowledge only differs in degree, not in kind. So everybody's knowledge is just different in degree. So eventually, if you follow that to its conclusion, we're where we are today. We just have multiculturalism. You know, the uh, Hindus have their view of knowledge, and that's right and works for them. And the Africans have their view of knowledge, that's good and right and works for them. And the Europeans have their view of knowledge, that's good and works for them. In contrast, as a, as a Christian, you believe that knowledge ultimately comes from God. There are a lot of things that uh, Adam could derive empirically from the garden. He could talk about different kinds of trees. Some had needles for leaves. Some had flat leaves. Uh, some were uh, darker green. Some were lighter green. Some had smooth bark. Some had uh, rough bark. Some had one kind of fruit that was edible. Others had another kind of fruit. He could tell you all kinds of things. But you know what he couldn't derive? He couldn't derive the ethics from it. He couldn't learn from empiricism that if he ate from one tree, he would die instantly. See, that can only come from revelation. And it is that one little bitty piece of information that redefines everything. Because no matter how much he gets empirically, he can't get that. And that's what makes the difference. So as a Christian, we believe that knowledge ultimately has its base in a revelatory framework that is absolute and it's derivative. It comes from God. So our view of God is that he is unique. He is the creator that is separate from all of creation and distinct from all of creation. And so in the challenge here, it really challenges their whole belief system, their whole thought system. It's going to affect everything in their lives. And that's why they've been vacillating. That's why they go back and forth. They, they don't want to commit to God. They don't want to, uh, but then if they don't commit to God, they know there's discipline. So they're going back and forth just like a lot of, just like a lot of, uh, a lot of Christians do. 
And then on that fourth category, uh, dealing with aesthetics, we see that uh, in, in human viewpoint aesthetics, nature ultimately becomes worshipped as God because that's what was always there. Matter is eternal, so nature gets worshipped as God, and that produces radical environmentalism. There's a, I put an article out on my blog that, um, uh, that uh, uh, Charlie Clough sent me the other day that deals with the relationship of radical environmentalism to the the uh, Nazi philosophy in Germany, and it's fascinating and will uh, really help you think through in terms of some ideas of, of worldview like this. As In opposite to that, we as Christians, we believe that creation is for the creature. Man is in the imago dei. So under pure human viewpoint, nature, art, and beauty are always destroyed. Just think about some of the stuff that passes for art and music today. But in And what it does to man is to dehumanize him. But in biblical thought, man is in the image of God, and he is to represent God. And how can you have a higher view of man than that? And so man then can imitate God in creativity and produce art and culture that has an extremely high value. So there's, it, it, the contrast affects everything. Now, what we read is that uh, Elijah puts out this challenge, and the people are silent. They don't say anything. So he says, I'm alone left of the prophet. Now, he's not moaning about that here. He's just recognizing nobody, none of the other prophets are out there taking a stand. He is, and it's him against the, the and he says, only mentions of 450 of Baal, but he includes, but the others are there too. And he's, then he sets up the point of challenge. Now, the point of challenge, he's very polite. Notice this. This is something you can use when you're witnessing or talking to people about Christianity. Let them, give them enough rope to hang themselves. Be polite, be kind, let them talk about what they believe and find the chinks in their logic and then, uh, you know, run your truck through it later on. That's what, um, that's exactly what Elijah does. We're going to take two bulls. You pick the bull you want. I'm, don't let me pick the bull. Then you'll blame me later. You pick the bull you want, and you cut it up, lay it on the on the uh, altar, and but don't build a fire. That's going to be the test. Now we have a couple of example. We have an example of the kind of altars they built then at um, at Megiddo. Now I'm not sure, wasn't sure how some of these would show up. This is it kind of gives you a little perspective. This is looking from a little hill, upper area down, and there's this round rock. Uh, altar there at, at Megiddo, and you see a couple of uh, porta potties up in the upper left-hand corner. That just to give you perspective on this, how this thing is, it's pretty large. Uh, then I have another picture here of uh, Brian standing there, and you can see it from above here, and you, it's a little, uh, it kind of blends into the background, so it doesn't have quite enough definition, but it has a staircase built into the into the rocks, and you can see that you could probably get 40 or 50 people up on top of that, on top of that altar. And this gives you a little better perspective, a jacked with the contrast some, so that you could, you could see it a little better. This was a large stone altar, uh, typical of, uh, of that period. And so they're going to build this altar, and then they light a fire, and they go from about 8 o'clock in the morning. People got up real early to go there for this test because they had to walk and ride their donkeys and, uh, they probably came and camped out the night before, so you yeah, had people camped out all over the mountain. It was, 
it was a major event. So uh, Elijah sets up the challenge. So you call upon your God, and I'll call upon my God, and you're going to go first. Whoever answers by fire, if he's real, if th- what you're teaching is absolutely true that you can base your life on it, then you could call upon him to, to, to uh, uh, light up the uh, altar, the sacrifice, he will. Remember, Baal was the god of lightning. He's the god of fire. He is the storm god. He is symbolized by, when, when he had the statue up there earlier and his arms raised, what was in that arm was a picture of a lightning bolt. Baal's the one who, if anybody can do it, Baal can, because he's the god of uh, fire and lightning. And so then he gives them that opportunity. They take a bull, cut it up, prepare the sacrifice, and they begin to call upon the name of Baal. They're screaming to him all morning long. They're going through all kinds of gyrations, leaping around, uh, all kinds of things to try to get Baal to answer. And this goes on from probably 7 or 8 in the morning until noon, and nothing happens. And then Elijah mocked them. Isn't that interesting? That's not politically correct, is it? Oh, for a Christian to be sarcastic and to mock what unbelievers believe. You bet it is. God ridicules them. And when we buy into the fact that the value system, the pseudo-value system of paganism, and say you can't use sarcasm and ridicule uh, the unbeliever in their belief system, you've already let them set the agenda. You know, you're beginning to lose already. They're lining up, loading up the bases and... You don't even want to get up there to bat. So he begins to mock them. Go on. What's he doing? He's pushing them to live on the basis of what they believe. To the evolutionists, there's no meaning in life. You just have to, uh, if there's no ultimate, there's no God, there's no uh, person out there, there's no ultimate absolute, then then, um, there's no meaning in life. You can just do whatever you want to do. Okay, great. I'm going to... um, I'm going to uh, uh, stab you. Is that okay? No, no, no. Well, why not? I mean, you say it has no meaning in life. How can you say anything's right or wrong? Just logically push them to the irrational conclusions that their system is built on until you ex- uh, expose to them that they can't live on the basis of their system because their system says when you die, you go in the grave and there's nothing in the future. It's pure hopelessness. Now, there are some people who are saying, yeah, well, that's what it is. And I'm just hopeless. But you don't live on a day-to-day basis as if there's no hope. Nobody can live like that. So you just push them by asking questions until they realize the fallacy of their own, their own system. So they go through all these gyrations to the point of where they're cutting themselves, slashing themselves, blood's going everywhere. And it goes on all day long until it's evening, five or six in the evening, the time of the evening sacrifice. And Elijah then calls the people, come close. You're going to see there's no trick. I'm not setting something up under the altar. You're going to watch everything I do. Everything. You talk about pure uh, visibility here, transparency. He's going to rebuild the altar of, of Yahweh that was there, and then he uh, takes the bull, he kills the bull, butchers the bull, lays it out, and then he comes to the point where he is going to uh, really increase the test. Down in uh, verse 32, we read that with the stones, he built an altar in the name of Yahweh, he made a trench around the altar, enough to hold two seas of sea. That's about, a sea is about 15 quarts. So that's not a lot, but it's just a small trench around the, around the, the altar. 
He puts wood on it, cuts the bowl up, puts, lays it all out there, and then he says, fill up the four water pots. How long has it been dry? Three and a half years. Where are they? They're on top of a mountain. Where are they going to get the water? Have you ever thought about that? Where did they get this much water? I'll show you where they got the water. This is taken from the top of the ridge, and you see there's a, there's a little green line down along the base of just the other side of the highway. You see this little meandering stream. That's the Keyshone River. That means they had to run down to the river, fill up their water pots, and run back up. They did that three times, so it took a little while. Here's a little closer look at it. You, see, uh, you can see the water line there by looking where the trees are growing. They're growing along the, uh, along the brook. So they had to run down, fill the pots up, come back up. And at that point, he prays, he calls upon the Lord. It came to pass at the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice that Elijah the prophet came near and said, Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel. So the first thing he's demonstrating is that Yahweh is God, that there is an absolute personal reality behind everything, and he exists. Second, that I am your servant. That validates everything that he has done. And third, that I have done all these things at your word. And then he says, hear me, O Lord, hear me that this people may know that you are the Lord God and that you have turned their hearts back to you again. And this is what the challenge is. He's saying it's as if it's past, but that is the purpose of this is to change their thinking and turn them back to God. And then Immediately, he doesn't have to cut himself, he doesn't have to dance, he doesn't have to go through any emotional gyrations, he doesn't have to get everybody worked up by singing 27 verses of Do Lord. He just simply prays. And then instantly, there is the flash of fire from heaven that comes out of a clear blue sky. There's no storm. It's been dry. And the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt sacrifice and the wood and the stones and the dust, and it licked up the water that was in the trench. It consumed everything. It's vaporized instantly. And this could be seen from miles and miles away. The, the tradition in Israel, the sort of oral tradition that's been passed down, is that this could be seen for 50, 60 miles away. It lit up. Israel and everyone had a visible physical evidence that God that God was real. And this is what brought them to a cha- brought them to their point. The people had to make a decision. They had to recognize either the word of God is true and God is true and he exists which means everything in my life has to change or it's not. And they were fit they were met with that evidence that day. And next time we'll come back and we'll see what the consequences are because when belief system changes, there are always consequences. But the God who sent that fire from heaven that day is the God we still worship. And he is just as powerful. He is doing things differently today because we're in a different time period of his historic plan. But he is real. But the message to each of us is still the same. How long are you going to leap back and forth between two opposing uh, positions? How long are you going to try to do it your way and then do it God's way? And that's the decision we have to make. Are you going to be aligned with reality and truth? 
or are you going to be against God? Because those are the only two positions. With God, there's no neutrality. You're either for him or against him. Let's bow our heads, close our eyes, close in prayer. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study these things, to once again realize the power uh, that you have, recognize the reality of your existence, and that this is just as true for true today as it was then, as, and it's just as true today as if it happened yesterday. And it gives just as profound an evidence of your existence. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning who's unsure of their salvation or uncertain of their eternal destiny, that they would take this opportunity to make that both sure and certain, that they would recognize that you are God, that you are the God who has given us the perfect solution to our problem of sin, and that it is based upon your grace, and that all we need to do is to believe upon you, and that is it, to trust Jesus Christ as our Savior and him alone, and we have eternal life. Father, we pray that for the believers we'll be challenged not to take our Christianity, not to take our Bibles, not to take Bible doctrine uh, for granted, that we recognize what a privilege it ha- we have to have your word, and that we are called upon to have the same kind of courage, the same kind of convictions that Elijah demonstrated, that we might be an, uh, an example and an evidence to the world of your reality. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.